this is going to turn out to recycle some things that have come up already in the in the conference so far. Um, and I had a quick glance at it and thought that there were some things where possibly I didn't believe anymore what I wrote three days ago. So I, um, I may just read what I wrote or I may adjust it depending on uh, how I feel. <laughs> so this started out as a genuinely exploratory paper. I didn't set out with a thesis to prove but rather an inquiry to pursue to investigate whether we can work out which of the terms in Empedocles' poem are meant to be the names of gods, and whether there is any significance to the use of a divine name to refer to some item in the cosmos. On the other hand, I have a hunch, which I shall lay on the table at the start, which is that when Empedocles uses a personal name, and a divine one in particular, this indicates that the item in question is not inert matter, but rather is an agent or power with capacities of its own, including the ability to alter its behaviour at will by becoming more affectionate or less affectionate, for instance. And my hypothesis is that these changes are voluntary and are adopted by personal agents in the cosmos. Uh, it is a cosmos. <laughs> Empedocles' ontology, then, is not an ontology of things or stuffs, but an ontology of spirits or agents. My suggestion is that it would also be wrong to think of these cosmic components as impersonal powers or forces that automatically tend one way or another. The world is, I suggest, much more of a living being inhabited by living agents and spirits. It's not a mechanical system. So the first thing to do is to challenge the title of my paper, for it asks which things have divine names in Empedocles. If I'm right, we should avoid thinking in terms of things at all, if things tend to imply medium-sized inanimate objects. Most of the things that I shall be talking about are not objects at all, and they are certainly not inanimate. I'm not sure if there are any objects in Empedocles' universe. I rather doubt it. So the question is, does Empedocles' world primarily contain gods and spirits with decision-making powers and affections, or does it contain stuffs that can be poetically likened to gods and spirits, but which are not really agents of that kind, or does it contain some of each? And then some more complicated questions. When Empedocles explains the origin of mortal animals and plants and any other temporary compounds in the world, does he think of these as mixtures, mixtures of inanimate stuffs or are they combinations of gods and spirits? Uh, if they are composed of gods and spirits, are the powers and tendencies of those gods determinate and fixed as though they were chemically stable and inalterable components? so as to form a world that is determined by the unchanging behavioural patterns in its material composition? Or are the behaviours of those living, these living components themselves voluntary and alterable at will? So my paper falls into three parts, um, the, and the um, handout has the headings on as well as some texts. So this is the introduction. Um, so, uh, in part one, I examine the names for harmonious and hostile motivations, love and strife, 
Secondly, uh, in part two, I investigate the names for the so-called roots or elements. And thirdly, I look briefly at some other divinities that get an occasional mention in the poem. So first part, love and strife. Firstly, the standard terms, which seem to be Philotes and Nekos. It appears that Empedocles' standard formulate technical terms for the forces of unity and differentiation are Philotes and Nekos. In the fragments as we know them, not including the supplements in the papyri, uh, the noun Philotes occurs nine times and Nekos occurs twelve times. So these seem to me to be the default terms that Empedocles uses to describe the tendencies that govern the cosmic cycle, so that things are alternately drawn together or pulled apart. Although there are other names that also serve as interchangeable descriptions of the same tendencies, Philotes and Nekos seem to be the names that are not intended to be figurative, uh, or metaphorical, or substitutes for the real name. They are, so to speak, the official terms for describing the unifying and divisive tendencies. Are these two nouns, love and strife, the proper names of two divinities, or the technical terms for two attitudes or tendencies that are found in the world. If they're proper names of divinities, it seems appropriate to give them a capital letter and to speak of love as a she and strife as an it. Nekos is not a masculine noun, though some people sometimes talk about him as a he, or it as a he, but that's not grammatically correct, uh, so we'll get more on that in a moment. If, on the other hand, Love and strife are not personal agents, but just attitudes that other agents manifest. Then we would be wrong to personify them, and it would be better to leave them without a capital letter and to speak of it for both, rather than he and she. So, some considerations in favour, um, first, of supposing that love and strife are merely the attitudes or intentions of other beings, um, and not divinities in their own right. <coughs> So in favour of the idea that these are just emotions or attitudes and are not independent agents with proper names, we might consider the use of the terms in the dative. Some of the references to philotes occur in the dative, philoteti. This happens in most of the cases where Empedocles speaks of all things coming together in love. B17, 7, 22, 21, 8, 26, 5. For these lines it makes, a good, makes good sense to think of the components of the world being in love or motivated by love, without supposing that love is a goddess, and without thinking of love as a further entity alongside the things that display love or unifying tendencies. The lines that speak of love in the dative can easily be understood without putting a capital letter on Philotes and without thinking of Philotes as an entity at all. Indeed, it's worth comparing these expressions with the standard Homeric expression for engaging in sexual intercourse. For instance, at Iliad uh, 2, 2, 3, 2, 3, which is on your handout, Thersites, railing against Agamemnon, asks, Thersites asks Agamemnon whether he's wanting to acquire some woman so as to mingle with her in love. So I'll come back later to the verb mingle, as this sign which is used here and throughout Homer and Hesiod for sexual intercourse. But for now we should notice that enfiloterity is a standard expression in Homer and Hesiod for sexual relations. So should we not take Empedocles to be talking about how things come together for sex, right? And sex or sexual desire is not some other thing besides <coughs> the things that have sex with each other. 
and Pedocles speaks of coming together in love. In most of the answering lines, which describe the counter-effects when things are moving apart in strife, Empedocles doesn't use the dative of nakos, as we might expect. Instead, he typically uses some other word in the dative, for instance, ethe, and then nakeos in the genitive, as in the repeated line, alote de audiche casta porumena nakeos ethe. Here, too, we could take Empedocles to be thinking of hatred and strife as attitudes. Perhaps a hatred, ethos, is a subspecies. It's one of the attitudes that are generally described, generically described as attitudes of strife. So we don't have to use a capital letter for nekeos or for ethos. We need not think of either of them as a god or an agent or component of the world alongside the things that display that attitude from time to time. Perhaps it's just a quirk of Empedocles' style that he typically avoids using nekos in the dative in all these pairs of lines about the ebb and flow of the cosmos. There are also two examples where Empedocles substitutes an alternative word in place of nekos so as to be able to use a dative. For example, he uses kotos in the dative in uh, B217, uh, apparently as a synonym for nekos, and And in B24, he uses erides as a synonym, apparently, maybe. <coughs> In the Strasbourg papyrus, part of a line is missing at Ensemble A17, where one of these formulae is required. And Martin Primavesi suggested that the line should read Enda Echre Gepalin Diefu Cleon Exhenos Ani. They justify the un otherwise unparalleled case of a feminine noun being used as synonymous with strife because they take this to be the antecedent. For the feminine pronoun that they find at the beginning of line three um, of the bit of the papyrus called A2. Um, I don't believe myself that either thought, uh, either of those thoughts can be right uh, for reasons that will emerge uh, a little bit later in section one four. Nevertheless, there is good reason to think that the pair of lines in A16 to 7 did indeed describe the effects of love and strife, one line for each, and that some synonym of strife would have been used in the dative at this point. Uh, I just think that it's unlikely that the term was feminine. So plainly these other words meaning strife and quarrels are just standing in as metrically useful and elegant synonyms for the more regular nakos. So if we weren't taking nakos to be a proper name of a god, we should not take kotos or erides to be gods either. Indeed, the move from the singular to plural in the last case rather suggests that this isn't at all a proper name for someone, but a description of the attitudes, activities and emotions that come under the general description strife. So this habit of referring to species of strife and substituting one kind of strife with another to refer to the discordant attitudes that characterise the period of strife seems to argue in favour of thinking of strife as a kind of attitude, a way of thinking and behaving that affects the agents in the world just insofar as they think the hateful thoughts. We could surely see the world as made up of nothing more than the agents who have these thoughts, and love as nothing more than the way these agents think and behave. We wouldn't need to posit any additional powers that put such thoughts into their minds. And the dative usages don't suggest a personal agent. For agency would normally be expressed by Hupo and the genitive. 
once, only once, we find the word nekos itself in the dative, namely in the famous last half line of B115, nekos. And here the dative is of the person to whom one attends, after a verb of service or obedience. So the grammar differs from the dative after in that we were looking at it in a previous section. It's not always, there's not always an in actually. So um, that dative, the philotetic one, um, dative qualifies the nature of the tendency to harmony or disharmony or the sphere of influence under which it takes effect. The expression in B115.14 seems to me to invite the idea that strife is a personal agent with thoughts and intentions. It seems much more tempting to construe the dative after pistonos as referring to a person or agent of some kind, someone whose instructions one might obey or whose will one might be subserving. By contrast, the reference to a period of things acting in harmony or disharmony lends itself more to the idea that what is meant is the intentions and thoughts of those affected, that they are just thinking loving or hating thoughts. So the trusting in raging strife line invites us to think of strife as a separate agent from the agent who places his trust there, whereas acting in the hatred of strife doesn't, it seems to me, require that idea. Now, I'm not sure about the next bit I'm going to read. Um, I'm trying to speculate on why Empedocles habitually voids the dative, and it may be that somebody's already said something about this that I don't know about, um, and that what I say will be rubbish, but let's try it. So why does Empedocles habitually avoid the dative of Nekos in all the other passages, but place it right there, startlingly up front, as the first emphatic word of this devastating line of 115.14? One possibility is that the dative is quite harsh and inelegant, and that the diaresis is somehow objectionable or unattractive between the two vowels in the second half of the foot. Perhaps the point is to dramatise the crazy desperation of one who is a fugitive and dependent on something harsh and unpoetic. Another possibility is that we might detect a pattern of such dactyls with adjacent vowels all through the lines of that fragment. So I'll put the fragment on there with some examples underlined, which seem to me to be um, kind of dominant in passage. But whatever the reason for the avoidance of the dative elsewhere and its presence here, this passage seems to me to treat strife as an agent, on whose guidance and instruction the exile is dependent. It seems to be a personal being or God, has intentions and ideas of its own, not just in virtue of others thinking in a certain way. Yet evidently the being named strife is not to be equated with the being named God in the previous line, Theophen, from whom the fugitive is in exile. So we should uh, return at a later stage. To the question of who God is. So as I noted above, although love is clearly a she and is given a range of alternative feminine names, strife is plainly not a he. The term nekos is neuter, so were we to use a pronoun for strife, we should use the neuter. But notice that Empedocles never uses a pronoun for strife, although he regularly uses the feminine pronoun for love. When strife appears, it is in subject position as the active agent, keeping things apart, for instance, at 35.9. There's no mention of it in the text as we know it. There's another discrepancy between the treatment of love and strife. Although Empedocles often uses alternative words or names for strife, such as kotos or ethos or erides, as we've seen, 
These are not names that belong to divinities, and Empedocles doesn't advise us to see manifestations of strife among our traditional current pantheon of familiar gods. By contrast, he explicitly equates his cosmic love with Aphrodite, uh, and calls to mind a number of other names by which he reckons she is already familiar to us. This love seems to be our favourite female divinity. She's already loved and appreciated. We think of her as the source of all that we enjoy in this world. So, for instance, at B17, 21 to 24, Empedocles says, Maybe I'll read the English for you. Her do thou consider in thought, sit not with thine eyes amazed. Among mortals she is believed to be born into their very joints and thereby they think friendly thoughts and do joined up deeds, giving her the name Joy and Aphrodite. So Aphrodite is the same force as the cosmic love who plays a role in uniting the cosmos. But strife, it seems, is not one of our gods. Is this because we're not currently in a period in which strife is dominant? Though if we were in such a period, strife would be our top god? Or is it that even when strife is the dominant power, nevertheless our gods are still the gods of love? That the place we always yearn to be and the goddess whom we always like to serve is never anyone but love, because even under strife we feel ourselves in exile from our true home. I think the answer to this question is not clear, though maybe we're getting there from some of the things we've been discussing. But the last line of B115 suggests to me that we sometimes take strife to be our top, top god. In any case, there is a clear preference for identifying love as a female power, and the alternative names for love are all feminine. In this poem, it seems to me love is definitely a she. And strife is apparently just it. Does this make a difference to whether we can think of strife as an intelligent agent with a plan for how the world should be? Does it perhaps suggest that strife's effect is disorder? that strife does not design a nicely ordered plural world, but rather just breaks up every kind of unity that there is, and thereby renders things chaotic and disrupted. So strife's end would be not neatness or separation as a, as a nice ordered whole, but simple destruction, and then mad is the word. And I think that this observation encourages, probably rightly, the, well, I thought it was rightly, I'm not sure now, um, the conclusion that strife's effect is not limited to the separation of elemental masses, but is far more destructive and disordered than that. That strife breaks up every coherent unity to produce disordered variety of increasingly fragmented components, whether those be limbs or compounds or fragments of elements, and that there's no limit to the diversity and disorder that can be produced by this destructive job. Now, what about the age of Kypris? Under strife, we are in exile, I suggested, because we, all humans and all animals, perhaps all diamonds in general, always long for a place in which love holds full sway, even while we are enduring or even complying with the ambitions of divisive strife. Home for the exile, it seems, is the place of the blessed ones, or perhaps the sphere, who is God. So in B128, Empedocles describes in the past a period or age when only love was worshipped and there were no gods of strife or war. This is not exactly Hesiod's golden age, but the motif is certainly in that tradition of thought. So Empedocles says, 
328, there was no god Ares for them, nor Cudoimus, nor was Zeus king, nor Kronos, nor Poseidon, but Cypris was queen. Jean-Claude Picot has argued that Hesiod's motif of the races or ages of men is implied in the sequence of five gods listed here. <laughs> Hesiod's golden age was an age under Kronos. I hope I'm going to represent you correctly, um, Jean-Claude. So Picot suggests we should see references to a whole series of other ages or races of men, one referenced by each of the five gods in this passage. The upshot is that the period that Empedocles is describing when Cypris is queen is not any of the ages of Hesiod's story, all of which have the wrong gods. He also reminds us that this age of bloodless sacrifices, assuming that the lines that Porphyry quotes in succession all refer to the same situation, that, that is that this can be juxtaposed with the one about the bloodless sacrifices, this age of bloodless sacrifices is still part of the period of exile and reincarnation of the daimon on this earth. So are any of the gods mentioned in B128 alternative names for strife? Because surely they, they would be the gods who would be honoured if we were a war-loving people. So it seems as if we honour Cupris because we are a, a love-loving people. <laughs> uh, and uh, if we were a war-loving people, we would have these other gods, um, Ares, Cadimus, Zeus, etc. But we don't need to suppose that they are names for strife himself. They may just be the presiding gods of certain ages that occur during the rule of strife, during the phases of the exile of the diamond. Kidoimus is not a standard Olympian god, but figures personified in the Iliad along with Ares at Iliad 18.535, and along with Ares and Enio at Iliad 5.592. Uh, the exclusion of these two, Ares and Kidoimus, from the Golden Age, well, it's not a Golden Age, but whatever age it is, the Age of Cupris, seems to indicate that their presence in our own devotions during the current age is a symptom of the power of strife governing our lives and the current world. So the gods that we worship, the ones who hold sway, we don't, but supposing we were in Empedocles' time, right. Um, the gods that we worship, the ones who hold sway in some period of our exile wandering, reflect the dominant attitudes and influences of the day. The presence of a god indicates the presence of his influence. Besides the exclusion of Ares and Kidoimos from this period, we should note the claim that neither Zeus nor Kronos nor Poseidon was king, but Cupris was queen. Here again we see that Empedocles includes a gender difference. It's not just that we have a god of love in place of gods associated with conflict and strife, but that we have a queen instead of a king. All the strife gods are masculine in this passage. The Olympian dynasties and the Hesiodic ages are always ruled by a male god until that male god is toppled by another male god. These events belong to a world of strife. By contrast, in the inverted world of love that Empedocles is recommending, the rule is not like that at all, and regime change is not done like that at all. The overthrow of strife is not achieved by way of strife. It is not a battle for power. Love is queen because people have chosen to exclude the gods of war and to live in peace. They have chosen to abolish animal sacrifice and to worship only Cupris. They've chosen it. 
So this is a quite different model of power from the one that characterizes the Hesiodic ages. It's a specifically feminist model, with a feminist model of regime change. The Velvet Revolution is engineered not by a battle for power, but by the subtle infiltration of harmony among the inhabitants of the world. Strife is pushed out because we no longer want it there, not because we have defeated it. Or rather, that is how love defeats strife. So that's the end of the first part about love and strife. Um, uh, plenty of loose ends that I'm sure you'll trying to pick up on. So now the roots or elements. Section 2. Traditional two poem readings of Empedocles used to think of the four elements as material stuff that is shoved about by the gathering and scattering forces of two moving causes, sort of Aristotelian picture, treating the elements as essentially inert, characterized by permanent physical qualities, but no mental or intentional characters. For such readings, Empedocles' habit of describing these elements as gods or daimones would have to be a kind of poetic fant fancy, metaphorical at best, confusing at worst. For surely, these stuffs would be the least alive things in the entire cosmos. But should we attribute to Empedocles an ontology of material stuffs like that? What alternatives are there? I shall investigate how far we can press the idea that Empedocles' cosmos is composed entirely of personal beings with intelligence and desires. I shall suggest the, uh, that, that we can go beyond the idea that these are impersonal forces and powers and conclude that they are personal beings with plans and motives and that their ability to change their moral intentions is a crucial part of the ontology. These beings don't have fixed patterns of behaviour. They have the capacity to change their ways. The patterns of change in the world are cosmic phenomena that can be traced ultimately to the moral choices of agents at every level of being. And this, I suggest, is the key message of the Empedoclean doctrine. That is how love and strife gain and lose their influence. So, fragment six, then. <clears throat> the most famous passage in which Empedocles announces that uh, there are four roots, apparently mentioning them for the first time, is fragment mm -hmm. six. She's quoted in various forms by Sextus Empiricus, Stabius, Hippolytus, Eusebius, Probus, Tetzes, Clement, Philopnus, Diogenes, Laertius, Athenagoras, Heraclitus, Hermericus, as well as the work known as Pseudo-Plutarch's Placita, which, together with Stabius, form the basis for Aetius. So here we are. Here first, the, fruit, the four roots of all. Zeus, the bright hero, the life-bringer, Idonius, and Nestis, who wets the fountain of mortal life with tears. To the puzzlement of all subsequent readers, Empedocles does not say that the four roots of all things are earth, air, fire and water. He says Zeus, Hera, Idonius and Nestis. These are the names of gods, they are not the names of stuff. In antiquity and in modern times, interpreters have tried to decode the names, so as to obtain a plausible one-to-one -one correlation between the names listed by Empedocles and the four elements attributed to Empedocles in the doxographical tradition, namely earth and air and fire and water. Well, of course, not just in the doxographical tradition. We've got plenty of lists of these things in other bits of the text. Somehow, the four gods that he lists in B6 must be the name for those four kinds of stuff. Yet these gods are not particularly associated with any of these elements in mythology. So what was Empedocles trying to do then? 
We can see that the, the ancient interpreters from later antiquity were mostly guessing on the basis of total bafflement. They mostly try to use etymology as a method to break the code. Hence the placitum mentions boiling, zesis, to try to get a link between Zeus and heat, so as to reach the identification of Zeus with fire. For when he says Zeus, that means the boiling and the ether. Life-giving Hera means the air, Idonius means the earth, and Nestis and fountain of mortal life are, as it were, sperm and water. Notice how the Placita has used the term Ither to mean fire. That's probably what Ither standardly meant in his time. Yet, as we know from other fragments, Ither is a term for air, not fire, in Empedocles. I think I'm convinced by Peter Kingsley that the names used in B6 probably uh, refers to Ither, air, that is. So perhaps Pseudo-Plutarch or Aetius or whoever wrote this passage first had more than just etymology to make him say that Zeus is the name for Ither. Perhaps the writer had some source that correctly correlated Zeus with Ither. If so, then the mistake in the Placata would have been generated by a simple misunderstanding due to the change of vocabulary over time, leading him to suppose that the word Ither in his source meant fire. Hence, he then looks for some rational connection between the name Zeus and the element fire. And this is what prompts him to suggest a contrived etymology that connects Zeus with boiling, says Having assigned Zeus to fire, he is then looking for some other candidate in fragment 6 to serve as heir. Uh, he's eliminated fire from the list, so he can't consider any of the others as a candidate for being fire, but must share out air, earth and water among them. And that's how the rumours start. So all this background to the ancient decoding of the elemental names of Fragment 6 is carefully traced by Peter Kingsley in his Ancient Philosophy, Mystery and Magic. Um, and as I say, uh, at the moment I think I'm um, tolerably convinced, but not much of what I say hangs on um, thinking that he's uh, done it exactly right. Um, so Kingsley recognises the importance of understanding this passage correctly and of diagnosing the reason why Empedocles uses the particular names and epithets that he uses here. That, it, that it's important and that we need to think about why this is a list of gods and what on earth is going on and which god is which, that seems to me to be absolutely right. Um, and obviously Kingsley um, gets um, some pretty controversial consequences out of it. So I'm not going to repeat the detailed and careful treatment that Kingsley provides in the first five chapters of his book, but suffice it to say that the upshot of his inquiries um, suggests that Empedocles used the term Ither, not Ier, for the element that's come down in the doxography as air. And this Ither was the element that formed and was sometimes called heaven. So it was not a wet or misty air, but rather a dry and bright kind. And by contrast, the occasional references to Ier in Empedocles should be carefully distinguished from this element. In, in places where they're not actually due to corruption in the text. Kingsley then examines the use of the Homeric epithets, particularly the epithet Pheresbios, applied to Hera in B6, and the epithet Nephelagerites, recorded by Plutarch, as an adjective for Empedocles' element, air. This indicates that Hera should be equated with Earth, he suggests, and Zeus must be the name for Ither, the element air, also known as Uranos. The idea that Hera is the name for Earth is supported by Hippolytus and Stobaeus.
And this leaves nestis meaning water and idonius meaning fire. Nestis isn't a particularly familiar god to most of us, but Kingsley uh, convincingly shows that we should endorse the hypothesis that this is a Sicilian name for Persephone, and that her tears, mentioned in line 3 of the fragment, relate to the myths of her annual visit to the House of Hades during the winter months, and the seasonal springs and rivers that run dry in the summer and flow in the winter. And the fourth god in the list of roots in B6 is Idonius. The ancient interpreters were unsure about how to identify what element this was re representing. Some claimed it must be earth and others that it must be air. But all we really know is that Idonius is a name for Hades. But now if we take the name, the Hades name seriously, things begin to fall into place. If Nestis is Persephone and Idonius is Hades, I suggest that we should start to look more at the pairs of male and female gods and less at the riddle of how they encode the elements by etymology or mythical associations. Fragment B6 does not just list four co-equal elemental gods. It mentions two marital couples. Zeus and Hera are husband and wife, king and queen among the Olympian gods of the upper world. Hades and Persephone are husband and wife, king and queen among the Chthonic gods of the underworld and mystery religion. This suggests that there is something more to the four-element system than just a model of chemical composition. Fire and water are chthonic gods, no doubt, uh, because if you live on Mount Etna, it is apparent that the earth is liable to spill out fire as well as water from its nether regions. They are also elements who can be in competition. Water quenches fire, fire evaporates water. Yet they live at times in some kind of uneasy harmony under the volcanic surface of Sicily. And they are also a pair of chthonic deities whose story is one of alternately coming together and going apart, seasonally, over and over again, year in, year out. The myth of the seasonal return of Persephone gives us a clue as to what kind of coming together and falling apart Antipodes has in mind when he thinks that the gods or elements alternately get together and move away. It's not just chemistry and it's not just physics, it's also kind of agency and it's got something to do with marriage and sex. If the marriage of Hades and Persephone underpins the seasonal association and dissociation of fire and water, what about Zeus and Hera? Again, we needn't think so much about a physical or material solution to the riddle of why Zeus is Ither and Hera is Earth, if they are, which, as I say, it doesn't much matter if you change your identifications. Um, we shouldn't think so much uh, about a material solution or a physical explanation of the alternating periods of harmony and disharmony. Should we not rather think of an explanation in terms of the mythical characters? Zeus and Hera, for instance, are notorious for their marital strife. Sometimes they quarrel and deceive each other, sometimes they are in a harmonious <coughs> marriage. Is this also serving as an allegory for seasonal comings and goings in the region where air and earth come into contact, and for the productivity in crops and husbandry during the fruitful seasons of the year? Sometimes Zeus and Hera come together and the earth is fruitful, Sometimes they are at odds, and storms destroy the crops, and nothing grows. Doubtless there are some here who think that Kingsley has overstated his case or missed something crucial. Um, but as I say, uh, right now I don't share that view. However, it's worth pointing out that even if you insist that Kingsley must be wrong about which god is the fire, the point about pairs of married partners can survive. There's the basis of a narrative here with pairs of divinities, not just a list of chemical components. And the idea that they come in pairs that are potentially hostile rivals and potentially harmonious marriages 
is important in various ways, of which the male-female partner idea is just one of the most obvious. Thinking about these two pairs of male and female divinities, it seems to me that we should not regard fragment six as just a list of four elements, curiously encoded with the names of random gods. It seems to me that we should not pretend that Empedocles was writing simple prose and saying something scientific, such as that the four roots of all things were ether, air, fire and water. That's not what he means. He means us to think of the ebb and flow of discordant and dysfunctional marital partnerships and of the periodicity of the seasons and of the productivity that occurs in periods of harmonious collaboration when the elements are not at war but cohabiting in good order. Love and strife are not so much external to this picture as part of it. Sexual attraction and repulsion is part of the story of these pairs of gods. They are agents who sometimes love each other and sometimes don't. So, two, two organic compounds. While we're considering the marital pairs in B6, we should also look at places where Empedocles mentions these gods again elsewhere in the poem. And we should look at other lines where Empedocles describes the elements as gods. The name Nestis recurs, again naming a root or element, in B96. Empedocles seems to be describing the ratio of elements that combine to make bone. But of the eight parts, the kindly earth took into her broad melting pots two parts of shining Nestis and four parts of Hephaestus. These became white bones held together by way of harmony's awesome gluing. In this passage we seem to be doing biochemistry. If we assume that chthon is the element earth and that her melting pots are not merely the mixing vessel in which other components are combined but are cavities, the spongy bits I suppose, in the earth component that allow it to absorb other ingredients, then we can see that a certain quantity of earth, two parts out of eight, has to be combined with a similar amount of water, nestis, also two parts of eight, out of eight, plus twice that quantity of fire, hephaestus, which supplies four parts out of eight. As a result of this combination, we get bones once the compound is glued by harmony. Although Nestis appears again, as in B6, and is apparently water on this occurrence too, everyone else seems to have a different name from the ones that they had in B6. <coughs> if Earth was Hera in B6, we have to presume that she is the one called Chthon in this case. And if Fire was Idonius in B6, it seems that he is almost certainly Hephaestus in this case. If this is right, then we have eight parts altogether, two of Earth, two of Water, and four of Fire. We might wonder why the ratios are given as proportions of eight parts, not four, since there are multiples of two in each case. Empedocles could have said that bone is made of four parts, one part each of earth and water and two parts fire. Why then does he say it's made of eight parts, uh, two of earth, two of water and four of fire? In the comparable case of the composition of blood and flesh, which in B98 he seems to say are the result of roughly equal quantities of all four elements, he does not give the number of parts in this precise way. In fact, he implies that blood and the various kinds of flesh are all slight variations on the same mix. A little bit more here, a little bit less there. Um, that's B98.4. As though there were, there is a continuum of minute variations that can occur and make the different kinds of stuff in this category. So evidently it's not that all comp compounds are ratios of eight parts, as in the case of bone. One feature to note about the bone case is that although there are only three elements included, 
The bones have no ether in them, it seems. Still, there is an equal balance of male parts to female. Four of the eight parts are Hephaestus, who is male, and four are feminine, two of them being Nestis and two of them Chthon. This suggests that the gluing that's brought about by love might have something to do with sexual union and not just some kind of chemical bonding. Harmony in the final line of B96 is evidently a reference to love, or at least this is plausible given that love is often described as the agent who engineers the unity of compounds and organisms and does the gluing. The verbal noun for what she does here is something like gluing, though this doesn't seem to involve adding some further kind of sticky stuff. Love's gluing is done with emotive glue. The things stick together due to their harmonious bonding. Harmony's awesome bonding may be the way that love unites male with female. So perhaps the double numbers of parts may have something to do with the idea that all the unification goes on between pairs. Every pair of components must be brought together in a kind of divine marriage of God with goddess. Four such pairings take place in bone, which is therefore made of eight parts, four male and four female. Two such pairings take place in blood and flesh, which is always made of two male and two female gods. Someone might be inclined to say that the variation in the divine names used for these elements shows that these are not really being presented as the gods whose names they bear, nor as personalities at all, but that they are just generic stuffs as impersonal as our own chemical elements, and that Empedocles casually throws in names epi epithets for their decorative or poetic content to make it all rather picturesque. Ultimately, someone might say, the divine names are philosophically meaningless, like the divine names that we use for the planets, for example. Kingsley's made a case, I think, for thinking that Empedocles, with his Sicilian background, would have considered Hephaestus and Hades to be much the same thing, both gods of fire, both underground, both associated with the volcanic Etna. So there are good reasons for, to, to think that these are not just random variations on the names. Both Chthon and Hephaestus recur as the names for earth and fire in B96 and 98, about bones and flesh, respectively. Ultimately, I'm, I'm not um, sure what to say in answer to that, but uh, I think it's worth noticing that the allegory, if it's an allegory, or the metaphor, if it's a metaphor, is more than just let's throw in a few pretty names, uh, that there's other implications from the identity of these gods. So, 2-3, the union of Daimon and Daimon in fragment 59. In his commentary on Aristotle's De Chilo, 586-7, Simplicius responds to some puzzles raised by Alexander about Aristotle's comments on Empedocles. The puzzle is over how Aristotle can speak of the lines concerning the random encounters between dismembered body parts, heads without necks, and so on, as taking place in love, as though this was the period of love's total domination. Simplicius wonders whether the expression in love might mean not the total domination of love, but a period of returning love, when strife is not yet displaced. In this period of the early return of love, Simplicius says, the limbs were still dismembered parts wandering alone because of the division <coughs> caused by strife but they were pining for union. So I'll read the translation of this passage. But um, So in this setup, the limbs, which were still one-limbed beings, as a result of strife's division, wandered around pining for intercourse with each other. 
But, says Empedocles, when divinity mingled more with divinity, when love was finally getting a hold over strife, these things fell together just however they ran into each other. And besides these, lots of other joined up things emerged. Now my interest in this passage is in the reference to daimon having intercourse with daimon. The idea that the single-limbed organisms were pining for union, Mixios ephemena, invites the sexual metaphor. But simply, Simplicius makes the mingling of daimon with daimon, which, might, which also might sound sexual, apply not to the one-limbed organisms which were pining for union, but to love and strife. Perhaps he takes a misgator there to be used in a hostile sense, engaging in competition or warfare. And the idea is that the two divinities, love and strife, get more into contact and combat as love pushes strife out. But there are other options. One possibility is that the daimones are the one-limbed organisms. This would be more in keeping with the idea that those were the things that pined for intercourse or forget it, for mingling. If Simplicius is right to speak of these organisms yearning uh, for mingling with each other as they wander. The image of Aristophanes' divided beings in the symposium springs to mind, though possibly this isn't um, meant to be quite that kind of thing. Third option is that the divinities who yearn to come together are the elements or roots, Hades and Persephone, Hera and Zeus. In that case, the thought would be that these pairs of divine elements strive for union with their other halves. So the one-limbed organisms that are composed of those elements incidentally end up running into each other and in the process they stick together in larger conglomerations of limbs and thereby form more complex and organised creatures, or rather fairly disorganised ones, but at least not single-limbed. So this is the effect of love growing in the limbs and the increasing forces of attraction felt by the divine pairs of lovers. Their season of yearning to be together in harmony is upon them and it causes everything to rush into each other's arms, legs, necks, etc. So my own view, I think, fluid at the moment, my own view at the moment, I think, is that all these components of the cosmos, the love and strife, the elements, the single-limbed organisms, all of these components could be called diamonds, and that all of them are driven by the changing patterns of love and strife. So that yearning to go, come together in love is something that is felt both by elements and by single-limbed organisms and by complex organisms. Perhaps not love and strife themselves. Given the typical use of the verb emisgator for sexual union and the juxtaposition in Simplicity's text of this line with a line about limbs coming together, uh, one might pick up on the thought that I was um, toying with yesterday uh, about whether uh, we're to think of the limbs coming together as sometimes at least a sexual metaphor. Um, but I think it's preferable... Uh, Whatever we do with um, those things, I think it's preferable not to shift the sense of a miskatar to make it refer to competitive engagement uh, between love and strife. So I suggest that we should keep to the idea that the beings in the world are drawn to embrace one another uh, as love increases her power over them, and that that's what brings the single-limbed organisms together, um, yearning to be with each other. So, summary about the roots and gods. I suggest that uh, for Empedocles, 
the roots really are pairs of gods and the gods really are the roots of all things and that the things that result from the marital union of these gods are also gods and agents in themselves. So every god and daimon in Empedocles' universe is an agent with attitudes that affect its behaviour. And the behaviour of these manifold divinities created in the course of the mingling of the elemental divinities is not just determined by their physical characteristics but can be altered at will within certain limits. The elemental divinities come together in love to generate compound wholes when they're affected by love and the effect of love is to create this kind of bonding and create a generation of new beings. Alternatively, they can diversify and fall apart into discrete and hostile pieces, solitary limbs and disgruntled organisms with no desire to cohabit when the effect of strife creates a reluctance to bond. So it seems that we shouldn't impose a reductive materialist analysis on this poem, as though Empedocles were trying to talk about inert matter being shoved together and fixed by an external force. If we want to demythologize it, a more appropriate model might be to think of it in terms of magnetic forces and the power of attraction or repelling that make the compounds and agglomerations in current physics. But I think we shouldn't go that way either. I think we should keep the idea of agency and the set sense that love and harmony are attitudes adopted consciously and voluntarily in some sense by components with agency that are drawn together. They, they literally come to enjoy each other's company because they are under the influence of love. And this is what brings them together while love is the dominant influence. And this is what causes them to be productive of a multitude of mortal kinds of things. Uh, so these elements, I think, are given divine names not just for fun, but because they are indeed Hephaestus and Nestus and so on. And they are motivated to combine as a result of the bonding that happens when agents of this kind come together in love and find they're attracted. They want to stay together. It's not that they couldn't come apart, for they will one day come apart, and when they do so, it will be because they want to. Thirdly, other divinities. Now, I ran out of time, really, on this, um, so here's a little bit, some a few thoughts. Divine name, names occur in three other areas of Empedocles' discourse. One is where he speaks of the traditional Olympian gods. We've already noted the claim in B128 that in the period of love's queendom, there was no Ares, Cadomus, Zeus, Kronos, or Poseidon. These are the male gods of successive generations of mortals living under strife. They weren't there in the reign of Cypris because they are the male gods of a polemical kingdom in which rule is by force and rivalry, not by desire and peaceful harmony. The presence of Zeus among this list is the only one that might cause us some concern, for we've met Zeus as the element Ithar in B6. Should we remember that when we encounter his absence in the age of love's perfect? Perhaps yes and perhaps no. On the one hand, we might say that the pairs of gods in the list of roots in B6 is about the plural world in which the elements are distinct beings, divorced from each other at least in some respects. So it would be possible to affirm that when love is fully in control, none of these elemental divinities is really a separate divinity and nothing is set apart as Ithar by itself. But I'm not sure uh, we should go along with that. I think we might do better to say that B128 belongs to a different kind of myth-making. It's not so much about whether the elements are together or apart, but more about whether mortal beings live in harmony and worship certain divinities, kill for food, sacrifice animals, shed blood on the altars of the gods of strife and discord. 
the theme is moral and liturgical rather than cosmological or zoogonical. So perhaps we should not even bother to ask whether the Zeus mentioned here, where we're recognizing there's a certain style of being God, is absent from the worshipping community. But we shouldn't even bother to ask whether that Zeus is the same Zeus as the one mentioned in B6, where there's a certain kind of cosmic agent and uh, belongs in a, a marital partnership. Secondly, long lists of divinities occur in a few fragments that are hard to place, given the lack of context. I doubt that the evils, murder, diseases and the like in B121 <coughs> are meant to be the names of gods. But the female divinities in B122 and 123 seem to be personifications. Earth and sun, bloody battle and solemn harmony, beauty and ugliness, speed and delay, delightful truth and dark haired unclarity, that's B122. And then in B123, birth, decay, sleeping and waking, motion and rest, many wreathed magnitude, and some others which are hard to be sure about in the text. Again, Jean-Claude Picot has recently made some progress in this area and has reinstated the presence of wisdom, software, in fragment 123. Nevertheless, it remains unclear what exactly is going on here. The most striking feature is the pairing of opposite qualities, some of them familiar from Plato's examples of key oppositions in the Credo or the Sophist. Pico suggests that these oppositions imply a negative and positive evaluation of the respective, me respective members of the pairs. So that on fire, speech, which is opposed to wisdom, would have to be a negatively charged kind of speech, characteristic of the god's use. But all these goddesses are female, and it's not clear that they are paired as favourable and unfavourable, or positive and negative. Perhaps rather they are all features that characterise a plural and indifferentiated world, all of them responsible for diversity and difference. Maybe these are the oppositions and pluralities that underpin the Empedoclean cosmology during the world of strife. Why these goddesses are female remains unclear. Nevertheless, I reckon that they can be used in support of my general claim that everything in Empedocles is an agent, and that the whole construction is built on intelligent beings engaged in conflict or harmony with each other. And thirdly, there is a muse. Empedocles calls upon an unnamed muse in B3 and B4, who calls by name a Calliopeia in B131, asking her for insistence in singing a good discourse about the gods. Arguably, this kind of invocation of the muse requires no special comment, since the practice is a standard part of the poetic genre. Where the muse fits in Empedocles' ontology is perhaps not really something we should ask, though actually Hippolytus did ask it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but the fragment B131, where he appeals to Calliopeia, is worth noting because of its indication of what he takes his song to be about. At 1313, Empedocles asks for assistance in a discourse about the blessed gods. Amphitheon Macaron. Doubtless this fragment was placed in the Cathalmoi by Dealskrantz, partly because line 2 suggests that this is not the first time that the muse has responded to his request. Perhaps also Deals was influenced by the idea that the discourse upon which Empedocles is embarking is to be about the gods. Despite these considerations, most recent editors have moved this fragment to the start of the poem in which they take Empedocles to be doing physics, that is, the poem in which fragment 17 occurs, whatever else may have briefly preceded it. In my view, this is right, for the poem about the elements is a poem about the gods. 
But is it about the blessed gods? If I'm right that the whole of his discourse is about gods and divinities of some kind, perhaps not all of it is about the blessed gods, Theon Macaron, if the blessed gods means the one who are called Makaroi in B1156. For those are the ones who are at home in the paradise from which the daimon who wanders the paths of life is in exile. So perhaps there are some parts of the poem that are more clearly about the place of the blessed to which the exile longs to return, and other parts of the poem are about the exiled gods and the ones who cause their exile, which we might call daimones. And some parts are very definitely about the miseries of those beings who are torn apart by strife or who are born into a world of grief. So even if the whole ontology is in some way a story about divine beings, daimonids, and their inclinations and affections, including their suffering during periods of exile from their true home under love, there may also have been some part or parts of the poem which described more specifically the condition of blessedness to which we aspire to return when the power of strife is no longer holding us back. And the gods in that condition, including one that I've not uh, explored here, namely Sparos himself, maybe that's the subject of Theon Macaron. So even if only the Sparos himself can be strictly count as the blessed god, Empedocles asks his muse to help him to tell of the blessed gods in the plural. So maybe those are the daimones, including ourselves, who will one day return and be among the blessed ones. But if I'm right, we won't be plural then. But maybe the relation of singular to plural is a bit shifty, as in B115 and the things we were looking at yesterday. You know, this might not be accidental. Okay.